Would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 28? The plan, Lord willing, is that we will have a missionary here next week, and then on the 19th, we will have a baptismal service, likely being that the entire service and our gathering together that day will surround that service, including fellowship and fun and hanging out afterwards. Um, the details of that will be made known next week. But this week we are going to look at water baptism in the Bible. What God has to say about it. Why, a question, why is what is so prevalent and misunderstood in the world, in the quote-unquote Christian world, that is so clear in the Bible. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to understand not what we want to understand about baptism, not what anyone else wants to understand or any religion promotes, including this place. Um, but what is the significance of water baptism? What does your word say about it? Help us to understand that today in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is speaking for the last time in Matthew's gospel when he says in verse 18, in regards to any other authority, he begins by saying, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The authoritative one in heaven is Jesus the Son. The authoritative one on earth is Jesus the Son. Verse 19, Therefore, in other words, because I have this authority, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command, commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Jesus' statement. We will look later today at his statement at that same time in the Gospel of Luke, which is repentance for the forgiveness of sins is the message that we're to take to the world. But we look at this this great commission, this great command, not this great suggestion, but this great command to go into all the world, bring the message of Jesus Christ to everyone. When they accept the message, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. That's discipleship. If any church or any Christian does anything outside of those parameters, they are not following Christ. So these two statements are both important. Any church that doesn't make disciples is a false church. And any person who believes they can make disciples outside the church is a false follower of Christ. So the church, this is 33 AD approximately, about uh, 20 years later, the Apostle Paul will give us the doctrines of the church. There have been enough people that have brought in to the family of God. They've made Jesus their Lord. They've been baptized. What do we do together now? And the Apostle Paul comes on the scene. So every doctrine, every church instruction comes to us through the Apostle Paul. But none of that is going to leave this behind. So the makeup of the church will become clear and the mantra of the church has already been made clear. Make disciples, baptize them, 
teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. Everything from Genesis to Revelation, 613 commands in the Old Testament, a thousand in the New are all commands from Jesus Christ. That's how we make people disciples. If we do that, they will grow to make disciples who will grow to make disciples who will grow to make disciples. This has stopped in large part in our country. And that's why churches are dying. Churches are not dying because they don't have the right programs. They're dying because they're not making disciples and they're not making followers of Christ. Turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. We're looking at the foundation that is being laid by Jesus. Jesus um, gives us what maybe is the most important understanding from Christ of what happens in the moment of salvation. Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. In response to people wondering if John was the Messiah, John the Baptist, John himself says, as he answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The next verse talks about the effectiveness of this fire. The next verse you could lay right on top of John chapter 15. The next verse says his winnowing fork is already ready. He's ready to refine Christians. He's ready to make them like Christ. And the reality of verse 17 at the end of the verse is if you don't follow him, the fire is also kindled. That the unquenchable fire is the other option. So Jesus gives us the gospel in these two verses. And for our purpose, he makes this distinction. Jesus doesn't baptize with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire, meaning the Holy Spirit doesn't come in water baptism. The Holy Spirit doesn't come when a person is put into the water. The Holy Spirit comes when they make Jesus Christ their Lord. And as we saw in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, they come to Christ, they are baptized, they are taught to follow him in everything he commands. That's the foundation and the progression that includes water baptism as the first act of obedience to a believer. Turn to John chapter 4. We're looking at places that are simple passages that define for us this distinction. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, everyone must be born again, born of the water and born of the spirit. We are born of the water when, ladies, when the water breaks. So you have to be born first to be born again, and to be born again is not water. Jesus says you have to be born of the water. If you're not conceived inside a woman, you don't exist. And you have to be born of the Spirit, which Jesus says in John 7, 38 and 39, in believing in Jesus, you will receive the Holy Spirit. He sets that precedence, describes it in John 14, and we see something practical that Jesus did very intentionally when he was here, verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, mark this in your Bible, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. 
So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus intentionally never baptized with water. Because when Paul would baptize with water, people would get confused. When Apollos would baptize people with water, people would get confused. The person who paved the way for Jesus say, I baptize with water for repentance. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We read in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16 that that's following Christ. That has nothing to do with water. We know that from John chapter 4 because Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and Jesus never baptized anyone with water. That distinction has to be made. When we think about what we're celebrating today, the, the two ordinances that we talked about last week, baptism and communion, religion twists these so that if you took a poll in Mendota, Illinois, most people going to church in Mendota, Illinois would fall into one of two categories with communion. There is transubstantiation, which is they believe that when the priest presides over this, it turns literally into the body, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and then you eat him. The second most common in Mendota, Illinois, is consubstantiation, which Martin Luther led, which is we're going to break away from the Catholic Church. We're not going to say that the bread and the wine literally becomes Jesus, but what we're going to say is that the, the body, soul, and divinity of Christ and his presence in every way enters the bread and the wine. Both of these, what Jesus and Paul are going to define for us today, is the primary concern with that is that in both cases they are dispensing grace. Grace is never dispensed in baptism. It is never dispensed in communion. It is an affirmation of truth through which grace does not come. So what's the problem with infant baptism, with baptism in the majority of churches in Mendota, and with communion in the majority of churches in Mendota, they believe that salvation is gained, grace is given through these ordinances. Meaning that an incorrect understanding of salvation is practiced, meaning people remain lost. They're doing what they believe is true, but they're not realizing that it is not what is true. So about communion that we will celebrate later today, it is the Apostle Paul who instructs us, do this in remembrance of him. Paul establishes this as a memorial service of Christ to remember him in everything we do and to anticipate him coming again. Baptism is an affirmation of our salvation that has already taken place Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as Paul begins addressing these problems because people in Paul's day were associating water baptism with salvation. And Paul in the first chapter in Corinthians is correcting them. The two most prominent preachers in Paul's day in Corinth were the Apostle Paul and Apollos. So people were coming to Christ as Savior and they were being baptized. And they were mis, mis, 
placing their baptism as salvation and who they would follow. So people baptized by Apollos would follow Apollos. And people baptized by Paul would follow Paul. And Paul is angry in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says it's not about Paul. This is not about Paul. It's about Christ. And he is, we pick up this commentary in verse 17. Actually, let's pick it up in verse 14. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus, he was the synagogue leader, and Gaius. So no one can say that, I was that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. And then he makes this theological statement. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's the clearest statement in the Bible by Paul that baptism and the gospel are not the same thing. Gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, that if he is your Lord, then he is your Savior. And if he is your Savior, you are his forever. That's the good news. Gospel means good news. Paul says the good news doesn't come through baptism. Jesus did not send me to baptize people. Jesus sent me to preach the gospel. So the gospel is distinct and separate from baptism. In other words, grace doesn't come to you through baptism. And Paul is vehemently stressing that. And he goes on to say, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So that's the theology behind, okay, what if I do believe that baptism helps save me? What if the writings in my church, wisdom is the next thing listed there, my church tells me that I need to be baptized in order to be saved. What do I do? Paul says, well, what you are doing if you follow that is that you are emptying the cross of its power. The definition of a cult is any belief that doesn't rely fully on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Baptism relating to salvation or contributing to salvation says, yes, I know Christ did that, and I'll do this. Paul says you are literally draining the cross of its power. The cross of Christ either has all power or what? No power. And Paul is defining that for us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at one more place briefly in doctrine relating to baptism. From each of these passages on their own, they make a clear distinction between salvation and baptism. In Ephesians chapter 4, before Paul gives us the design of the church, he gives us the overall covering of the church, what God has done, salvation, how the body comes together. So beginning in verse 4, you see the word one, I think, six times. One body. There is one body and one spirit. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God 
and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So he gives us the doctrinal order in verse 4 that involves baptism, or excuse me, in verse 5. One Lord, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So there's one Lord. There's one faith. He's my Lord. I believe in him. I follow him. And then there's one baptism that comes in that order. So Paul doesn't just randomly say all of these ones. He says, here's the order. Jesus Christ is Lord. I put my faith in him as Lord. And then I'm baptized. Then he goes on to say there is one father who is over all, through all, and in all. That's only all believers. The father cannot have a relationship with a lost person. Jesus can because of the cross. The father can only be my father if there is one Lord, my Lord, Jesus Christ. And baptism speaks to that, and that's why the father showed up to Jesus' baptism when he was baptized. So we have from Matthew chapter 28, making disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them, starting with, Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then we have in Luke, John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire that will divide the line and it will refine the believer. The winnowing fork of Christ. Then we have in John chapter 4, John many years later has seen all of the, the, the false teaching in church for many years. John is writing about 50 years after Christ died and went to heaven when he writes the Gospel of John. And he says, it's necessary for me to write down Jesus never baptized with water. The Holy Spirit is telling John, people need to hear this, that Jesus never baptized into water. So there's a lot of false teachings, but they're not going to use these verses because they can't. It was ironic that I went to a baptism of a family member who was baptized as a baby and he actually read during the baptism 1 Corinthians 1.17 Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel as he's baptizing this baby to save it. So they're just words. It's just part of the ceremony but he's reading that what he's do doing doesn't save this child, and he's telling us that it saves the child. So that's the corruption of religion that we have in our world. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. We've looked at not all of, but some clear theology. It has to be in this order. You can't go to the book of Acts for doctrine because it isn't there. But you can go to the book of Acts to see the examples of how Peter and Paul practice what they preached. What has happened at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, Stephen is being stoned. He is telling people at the end of Acts chapter 7, you people always resist the Holy Spirit. He means they won't accept Christ. You put Christ on the cross. You won't accept Christ. So they put him to death for this. We read in, in the opening verses of 
8, chapter 8, verse 1, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Jesus prophesied in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that they would be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. To this point, a few years later, no one's leaving Jerusalem. So Stephen's stoning actually pushes them out of Jerusalem to go to Judea and Samaria. Philip is the first evangelist to the Gentiles, and we pick this up in Philip's second stop as an evangelist to the Gentiles, picking it up in verse 29, we see that he meets an Ethiopian eunuch. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. This is a person who is a, a, an employee of a, a very important Ethiopian in Africa. He has gone to Jerusalem. He has purchased the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading it. And God sends Philip there by the Holy Spirit. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture. This is Isaiah 53, where Isaiah is prophesying the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We studied this last week. Verse 33. In his humiliation, Philippians 2, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news or the gospel about Jesus Christ. So the good news about Jesus Christ, he comes to this person. This person is reading about Jesus Christ, giving up his life for the sins of the world. And this, this, this Ethiopian eunuch says, who is he talking about? Is this Isaiah or is this someone else? And he tells him the good news about Jesus, starting from Isaiah 53, that he suffered, he died for your sins, he went to the cross so that you could be born again. He could take your infirmities, your transgressions, all of your suffering from you. If you will follow him, he tells him the good news about Jesus Christ. We know that he responds because we see that in the coming verses. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? So part of what Philip preached to this individual was that he was to make disciples, that he was to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that he commands. This Ethiopian eunuch says, If he did that for me, I'm in. And they're riding along. He says, look, there's water. There's a pond or a lake or something. And we see this demonstration of baptismal, which is to immerse someone in water as a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. So verse 38, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. 
Then both of them, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, the same language as Jesus in Matthew 3. And Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but when went on his way rejoicing. So we see lived out what Jesus and John and Paul have been showing us. This individual's heart is touched by this person who would offer themselves as a sacrifice for them. And he says, what can I do? He gives them the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. He says, I'm in. I'll follow him. I want to be baptized. Look, Philip, there's some water. Stop the chariot. I want to be baptized right now. He goes down into the water, comes up out of the water. He rejoices. Philip is on to his next assignment. And this example is put in the scriptures for us. In Acts chapter 9, maybe the most demonstrative conversion in our Bible, which is Saul, Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul being his Greek name, which he adopts when he is sent for on his first missionary journey to Gentiles. But here, as you notice, I have so highlighted so many times, Lord, in all of these passages, Lord, 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 that's how we receive him. Picking up the text in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, as he neared Paul, nearing Damascus, on his journey, suddenly a light came from heaven and flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Kyrios? Saul said, I am Jesus, the only person that that says Jesus in this chapter is Jesus himself referring to his name. Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat and drink or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him, uh, on him to restore his sight. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to all your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. We'll see that later in Acts. And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord. Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, 
has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So in, the, in Paul himself, Saul himself, we see the doctrine of baptism lived out in its place. Jesus confronts him one-on-one. -on -one. He says, do what I say. Go into town. You're going to be there, and I'm going to send one of my disciples to you. His obedience shows that he is confessing him as Lord. This person comes to Saul. He hasn't eaten for three days. He's been blind for three days. He comes in, and Saul feels these hands touch his shoulders, and he hears the words, brother. So Ananias, whether this is his own idea or he's speaking for God, is telling us Saul has been born again. You are my brother. The Lord Jesus who stopped you on the way is your Lord now too. So he touches him, his eyes open. Um, he is sent, in, according to Acts 22, to open the eyes of the Gentiles. So there's a, a metaphoric thing here. It is very possible that his eyes were damaged in this um, sequence here, which is why Paul is struggling with his eyesight the rest of his life. But we see Paul confronted, converted, baptized, giving us the same picture. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Probably the clearest picture of, of defining baptism in its place in the Bible in an actual situation. What has happened here is that Peter doesn't believe Gentiles can be saved, doesn't believe he should associate with them, doesn't believe he should go into their homes. Jesus gives him a vision of reptiles and unclean foods, which are all clean now because Jesus has risen from the dead, and he sends them to a Gentile's house. He comes into this Gentile house, a man named Cornelius, who is seeking God with his life. He is worshiping a God he doesn't know. He is praying to a God he doesn't know. He is helping Jews who are descendants in the same line of this God because he knows that they're descendants. And Peter comes to him, and there are probably 150 people there, and he begins to explain the good news about Jesus Christ. So we pick it up in verse 39. Peter says to this crowd, We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, because Jesus' ministry was in Galilee and Judea only. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. That's why there is so much information surrounding the resurrection of Christ. Historically, Josephus says he calls him the resurrected one at one point before they get to his writings and change them. Josephus, who is not a follower of Christ, describes him as resurrecting from the dead. And Tacitus, a Roman scholar, does as well, and obviously the Bible does. And here Peter says, he caused him to be seen. There were probably thousands and thousands of people who saw him, but there were specific ones. Verse 41, 
he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he had rose from the dead. So in the Gospel of Luke, we see him enter a room and come into their presence and they think that it's a ghost. And he says, do you have any food to eat? He eats in front of them. He says, you see my scar? Touch it with your hand. Do you see these? Touch these. He says to them, does a ghost have flesh and bone? Does a ghost eat? He's establishing to them, I am physically, fully restored. And Peter is reflecting on that here. And he says in verse 41, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So here from the very get-go, he decides whether you live or die. Verse 43, how do you live, they might be thinking. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. They don't believe that it's true. Peter is about to explain this. They believe in him. Where's your hope? It's in him. Who's your Lord? In him. Where do I serve? In him. So they believe in him and they receive the forgiveness for their sins. This is critical now theology. Verse 44, what happens here astonishes Peter and everyone else there. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. This is a group of people who all want to be born again, who all will accept the truth if they just hear it. They hear it, and the Holy Spirit comes on them. They haven't said anything. They haven't done anything. They've heard it with their ears and then their hearts, and they're born again. This is so important to theology and relating to baptism that the Holy Spirit is in them because infant baptism, other forms of baptism, baptism that, that you receive grace, they all believe that that's the introduction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 7, 38 and 39, no, it's through believing in me. The Holy Spirit doesn't come with water baptism. It has nothing to do with a sacrament or something that you do or something that you touch. And this is a clear evidence of that. Verse 45, the circumcised believers, meaning the Messianics or the Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And again, always in, in the Bible, speaking in tongues is a testimony to a new people group coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Verse uh, 46 again, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, when? After he'd given them the good news. After they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit, past tense, just as we have. So he ordered 
that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So he has to go back to Jerusalem now. Peter was one of many in Jerusalem that Gentiles can't be saved. They have to become Jews first. They can't receive the Holy Spirit like we do. Jesus says, yes, they can. Go preach the truth, and I'll show you what happens. So now he has to go back to Jerusalem, and he has to explain himself. And we pick that up in verse 15 of chapter 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Back in Acts chapter 2, when Peter received the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he remembers back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 that Jesus said what John said back in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. Jesus told them, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is different than water. Peter's remembering as he's telling the Jews what happened. He says, I remember now what he said, that I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John baptized you with water. Peter is making the distinction here that I'm understanding what just happened. These people were baptized by Jesus Christ. Why? Because they accepted his message. Now I baptize them with water as a testimony to what they believe. Peter himself is learning and understanding the theology here, verse 17. So if God, Peter says, gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in the way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's an important statement because believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I always understood. I believe it. It's true. Peter says God granted them repentance that leads to eternal life. So if you ask the question then, he has said twice already, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means you turn from your sins You turn to Christ and you follow him as your Lord. And Peter is saying, now I understand that that's for everyone. That's not a Jewish thing. That's for every person who believes in Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, if you read catechisms and different things, they will say that um, we believe that Infant baptism is possible, even though it wasn't introduced until hundreds of years after the Bible was given. And they think it's possible because of Acts chapter 16. And we will understand from Acts chapter 16 that that's not at all true. So what does happen in Acts chapter 16 is Paul is put in prison. Silas is put in prison with him. They are beaten, they're flogged, they're put in stocks, and they're singing hymns. And everyone around them is listening to them, Luke says, And suddenly an angel breaks the chains off and the doors are open and no one leaves. You know, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, 
gentleness that is evident to all. They are in a room with people that deserve to be in prison, and they don't. They're not crying out to God, this isn't fair, this isn't right, why am I in this position, I shouldn't be here. They're praising God. Their gentleness becomes evident to all. So the second strangest thing that happens is that the angel takes all the chains off and opens the doors. The strangest thing that happens is that none of these criminals leave. Because they want what Paul and Silas had. And they don't understand. So the jailer comes rushing in and he knows that if one of them escapes, it is his life for theirs in the Roman government. And he's about to take his life. And that's where we pick up the text in verse 29. The jailer calls to the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want what you have. I want what Silas has. I want what these prisoners are hanging around for. I want it too. Then they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. So that verse is pulled out of the Bible. See, his whole household was baptized. He may have had little kids. We can assume that, right? Well, he's already corrected that once because he said that he preached the word, the rhematos, that is um, faith comes from hearing the words about Christ is the Greek word rhematos, words about Christ. So when we go back into Acts chapter 10, Peter was preaching the words about Christ. Paul is preaching the words about Christ. To who? To the jailer and his whole household. An important distinction from infant baptism is that faith, faith from one person is supposedly fixed on another person. In this house, Paul is preaching to all persons. How old are they? They're old enough to listen. They're old enough to choose. They're old enough to decide. That's how old they are, and Paul reaffirms that, or Luke does, as we read the next verse, verse 34. The jailer brought them, brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because they were baptized? No, because they had come to believe in God. Who? He and his whole household. Question. How old were they? Old enough to believe. Old enough to choose old enough to want to be baptized. They were old enough to understand. Turn to Acts chapter 26. So when we consider baptism, if you're considering baptism, who should get baptized? Who in this building should be baptized? The progression in the Bible is always the same. It's more immediate than we have today for sure, meaning that we probably have to gravitate back to the Bible. So in all of these circumstances, saved, baptized, 100% of the time, so it's always believing, it's always Jesus is Lord, it's always I trust in Him, 
then baptism. So the, the Paul puts these things one, two, three, as we saw in Ephesians chapter four, and he does this in Acts chapter 26. First, Jesus puts them in order. As we begin in verse 17, Jesus is speaking to Paul. This is the same time, the same conversation in Acts chapter 9. This is the third time that he is describing that testimony, and each time he tells us a little bit more of what Jesus said. Verse 17, he says to Paul, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them, sending a apostello. He's apostolizing Saul here. Verse 18, to open their eyes, which is why I think in part that he opened Paul's eyes when he was saved, and turn them, repent, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. That's repentance. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, set apart by faith in me, by turning from darkness to light, by turning from Satan to God. Verse 19, Paul says, as he's speaking to King Agrippa, we read in Acts chapter 9 that he would be my witness to kings. Here's one of them. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. In other words, this is what I preach to everyone everywhere I go. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance. So what is salvation understood as? I turn from sin, I turn to Christ, and then I do what he tells me. We read that when we started today. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded them. So teach them, turn them um, from their sins. You, you've got to leave your life behind. You've got to leave the world behind. You've got to make Christ your Lord, and you've got to demonstrate that you've done that. Paul is using the word must here, including that they must demonstrate their repentance by their good deeds. Does that save you? No. Does that prove you? Yes. I'm a follower of Christ. I know I'm going to heaven. How can you know? By doing what he says. I've trusted in him. I've made him my Lord. I do what he says. Turn to Luke chapter 24. where Jesus is saying exactly that right before he went back to heaven. He's not saying something different than Paul. Paul is saying in Acts chapter 26, I'm doing what he told me to do. Years before he said it to Saul, he said it to Peter and John and the 11. Luke chapter 24, verse 46 and 47 says, he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Same thing as Paul. 
all nations, all people, everywhere, repent. Turn from your sins. Turn to Christ and be born again. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're just going to look at a very simple verse. There are many of them like this. If you're considering, should I be baptized? We see the progression picture in the Bible. Repentance followed by baptism. So do you fit in that category? Let's, if you don't, don't leave today without answering that question. Have I actually turned from sin, turned to Christ, and am I living for Christ today? Because if the answer to that is no or I don't know, then you need to know Christ as your Savior. You need to give him your life. You need to know that at the end of this life is eternal life and not hell. That's very blunt and very straightforward. So in Colossians chapter 2, Paul gives us a simple verse. Verse 6, So then, as you, because he's speaking to believers, received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. He's saying the same thing here in a doctrinal book. So Jesus says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Have you done that? Have you turned from your sins to Christ? Number two, have you made Jesus Christ your Lord? Is it him who guides your life? Is it him who has authority over everyone else? Have you, according to this verse, made Christ as Lord and continue to live your life in him? And then Paul says we must demonstrate right across the page to chapter 3 in Colossians, verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So Paul says, Lord, Lord, Lord Christ. He says, Lord Christ, there's one time in the Bible that it says that it's right here. So Paul is saying, everything you do, do it for the Lord Christ. What is Christ to me, Lord? If that's who he is to you, then you are a person who should be baptized. When I look at this progression and I, and I operate in what I know and not what, what I don't know, and you ask the question, who should be baptized? This is what God said to me this week. You, Jim, should be baptized. Let me explain. At the age of six, I prayed for Jesus to be my Savior. I'm not sure between age 6 and age 32, what was going on. I was in church, and I was in sin. What I know is that at age 32, from that day on, Christ has been my Lord, not just my Savior from hell. So I don't know 
where I stood between 6 and 32, but I know where I stand today. Well, there's no picture in the Bible of being baptized before repentance. That's the world's picture. So I'm confronted as a shepherd here with my own situation. So I am one of the people that is going to be baptized on the 19th. I have confessed Christ as Lord. Luke 9.26 says that anyone who says they know Christ and is ashamed of me in this world, I will be ashamed of them when I come. That doesn't sound good. So I haven't been ashamed of him for a long time. But I also am more and more convinced that I was saved when I was 32 years old. And I can't just leap over the Matthew 28. So I'm not becoming saved. I'm not receiving grace. I'm not following Christ in a new way. But I don't want to leave a gap in obedience either. I don't want to leave the possibility with my relationship to God that I wasn't baptized after I was born again. So in the next week or so, ask yourself that question. Have I repented? Is Christ my Lord? And am I following him with my life? Paul says that those three things are critical. Paul tells Agrippa that the first time I tell somebody about Jesus, I tell them all three of those things every time. And practically every one of them that says yes gets baptized. So baptism doesn't save, but baptism is obedience. Obedience doesn't save, but without obedience, there's no proof of salvation, and there's no reali realization that he called me to obey. Why would I do something else? So theology in America, which is typically different than I understand the Bible, is that, well, you, ju you just believe. You just know it's true, and you're going to heaven. I don't see that. I see Repent, turn, follow Christ. It's simple, really, if I do that. I say, I know I'm going to heaven. And, and how much does that change my view of the world? That I know, that you can know, that we can know, that that can be our testimony. So on the 19th of this month, that's the plan, Lord willing, we're going to have a baptismal service. I'm on the list. Um, I, I want to make clear that we answer any questions between now and then so don't, don't bring your questions on the 19th bring them before then ask someone you trust it doesn't have to be me um, but let's just honor God with our obedience and let's testify because what I do know is that the most moving experiences I've had in church have been baptismal services it is something to confess that publicly before God that really touches a human heart, whether it's your heart going in the water or someone else's. So think about it and bring your questions between now and then. Next Sunday we will have more clear instructions about where this will take place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that he, along with Paul and Peter, makes so clear to us that the moment we make your son Lord, 
before we are baptized, before we receive communion, we are his and we are his forever. But they also make it clear that the journey has just begun. And in the Bible, the journey begins with baptism. Not as a form of grace, but as an act of obedience that says, I believe in Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. Help us to follow through. Help us to obey. Help us to love your son back because he loves us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.